Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the journey of the soul. This is my second interview with Doug Marmon. He is the author of many books, including The Whole Truth, The Spiritual Legacy of Paul Twitchell. It is what it is. The Personal Discourses of Rumi. The Hidden Teachings of Rumi. The Silent Questions, a spiritual odyssey, and that will be the topic that we'll be focusing on the subject of our interview today. The Spiritual Flow of Life and the Science of Catalysts. Sukhmani, the secret of inner peace. And after I finish interviewing Doug about all of his spiritual writings, we're going to get into a book with more of a scientific orientation called The Lenses of Perception, a surprising new look at the origin of life, the laws of nature, and our universe. This is an internet interview, and I'll switch over now to the internet video. Welcome again, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, my pleasure as well. Thank you. I really enjoyed going through your book, The Silent Questions, and I think uh, you actually begin the book with a wonderful quote from the uh, German poet uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, who, who points out that the questions are more important than the answers. Yeah, because that's exactly, that's exactly the point I feel about uh, the, the silent questions is that they are, it is about the questions, not the answers. It seemed as you wrote about your fascinating journey that uh, every time you thought you had found an answer, you, you were in for a lesson. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just as soon as I thought, okay, I can plant a flag in the ground here, I've, I've attained something, I had to start all over again. Your book begins with your childhood, and I think that's a, a really interesting place to start. Uh, what we've described in our previous interview about soul travel is actually an, an experience that you had had, and I suspect most people have had these kinds of experiences in, in, in their childhood as well. But uh, for you, it seemed quite pronounced. And uh, one of the early experiences, I know there are many, uh, but one of the early ones was uh, actually traveling out of your body and locating the house of a girlfriend. Yes. Yeah. Actually, uh, I was reminded of that experience by a friend of mine uh, a couple of years later after it had happened. I had forgotten about it. And I, was, I made this kind of comment to him that, uh, you know what, I think I may be somewhat psychic. And he said, oh yeah, definitely. And I was surprised at his reaction. He took it as, as something was a given. <laughs> but, I, but he reminded me of the experience. And it started uh, when I had a dream one night. Um, and in the dream, I, it was clearly an out-of-body experience. I felt myself actually leaving my body and going up through like the roof of the house, and it was a, a like a moonlit night outside. 
and I found myself flying through the air. And I wasn't sure where I was going at first until I reached like Main Street in down the, the town where we live, and which I hadn't been there very much, but I knew that road. And then I, I suddenly turned left. I'm thinking, where am I going? And then I reached this road, which I'd never been down. I turned right down that road. I went to the first street on the left and turned left there. And I went about, you know, halfway down the street. And I turned around and I thought, that's where Sue lives, a, a friend I knew at the time, actually I had known for many years. And it was just a, such a remarkable experience. It felt so real that I mentioned it to my friend Dave the, the next day. And he said, well, let's test it out. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, let's, let's go. I see, he had just gotten his driver's license and he had a car. So he picked me up and we drove down. And I said, okay, this is where we turned here and this is where we turned there. And we finally got to the house and I said, that's the house. And he said, you're right. I said, what do you mean? He says, yeah, that's where she lives. I didn't believe him. <laughs> he said he had been there before. I, I didn't believe him. So I actually got out of the car, went over to the mailbox, and saw her name on, her last name on the mailbox. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> it was really, really a strange experience. Yeah. So here you are as a, as a teenager. Uh, and I think one of the interesting aspects of this story is the notion of friendship. You had spiritual friends really starting as a teenager. Not everybody is so fortunate, but throughout your life, as, as you describe it, there have always been friends on the path with you and, uh, they've been very important. Yeah. Friendship actually has been a really important part of my life. Um, and, and you're right. I, it's interesting to hear you say that, but it's true. Absolutely true. As in fact, both Dave and Sue, uh, as I recall, play a role in, in the evolution of your journey. Uh, but nevertheless, you did a very interesting thing. You dropped out of college, uh, after I think uh, a year, maybe less than a year, and you spent time living alone in a tent in the woods. Yeah, it was that it was at a point in my life where I uh, really had to kind of sort out where I was going. Um, and I, I sensed I needed to make a change, but I wasn't sure what that change should be. And I really thought that going out and living in the, uh, the forest, which was a state forest, and a friend of mine had set up a tent out there, which he wasn't using. So I went out there and stayed there. Actually, Dave dropped me off, <laughs> so I was out there by myself without any transportation. And I stayed there for a while. And it did not go as I thought. I thought being in nature, I'd be away, I'd be able to clear all my thoughts, I'd be connected more to what I was looking for. And it, it just didn't go like I thought. I, I loved the nature part, I, but I didn't feel right there. I, I felt like... Uh, this was not what I was supposed to be doing. It took me a while. Um, and, but I, it gave me time to kind of contemplate and to think about where I should be going. And I had just run across some books by Paul Twitchell at the time. So I was reading some of his books and writing in my notebooks about some of the thoughts I was having at the time. Um, so, but it didn't go as I thought it was going to go. 
where you knew that uh, other things were calling to you then. And, and I believe it wasn't too long after you left this period of solitude in the woods, which I regard as very important because I, I spent just one week. I'm sure you were there for more than a week. I spent a week alone on Mount Shasta, uh, in my youth. And I think that was very, very important in my subsequent development. Yeah, it it did. I was able to get away from everybody else and everybody else's thoughts. So I was just alone with my own thoughts. But it really, uh, it did turn out to be a, a major transition period for me um, because I started to realize I'd had thoughts about, okay, where I really wanted to go, what I really wanted to do. And I wanted to explore the spiritual stuff, especially the, 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 these writings that Paul Twitchell had written. I wondered what it'd be like to go back to the office that he had set up in Las Vegas. It sounded like a crazy idea, but it was like something that hit my mind. And at that very time, when I had just kind of started thinking that made the most sense for me, my friend Dave came back. He, he, he drove back with his car and came walking through the woods. And I asked him, I said, I don't even know what day it is. Um, and I said, what day is it? And he told me it was my birthday of all things. And not only that, but then it hit me at that point, I'm 19. And I had had an experience when I was younger. And it told me that when I was 19, I would have the answer of where I was coming, where I came from, and where I was going to get my answers. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> it was like too much. It was an overwhelming experience when that hit me. Well, and I think it's worth going back to the original childhood experience you wrote about where you were visiting a, another realm, an entirely different realm that you called Eklar. Yeah, e Eklon, yes. Uh, it, it came as a dream, but it seemed absolutely real. Every bit of it seemed real. And I was clearly in another world, another reality, another state of consciousness or something. And the beings there were incredibly wise. I mean, I just felt unbelievably overwhelmed by their wisdom. And, and one of the beings came forward and said, you know, you have to go back to the physical. You have to, it's time for you to learn some lessons, some finished learning, some lessons there. And uh, I really didn't want to go back. I, I thought I was above it, you know, but <laughs> I realized what he was saying was true. I needed some things to learn. And he said to me, I needed to learn about people. Uh, I needed to, I, I think, you know, I've thought about that over, over and over through the years, but he, that's what he said. And, and he said this, and then shortly after that, I went through the experience of seeing myself come down from that world and go down through these layers and layers of dimensions until I actually incarnated in the physical. It was a really different experience. And when I woke up in my bed, I really did not know even where I was for a while because it was such a different consciousness. It took me a while to, okay, this is my home, I'm waking up, and it was so strange. I had to think, it seemed so real, but yet it was a dream, so was it real or wasn't it? But one of the things that had happened before I came 
back was I, I, I wanted to bring the dream experience back. Could I bring it back again? Could I go back into that world? And it, as I sat there on my bed before I was really open my eyes, I was able to kind of open the window again to that state of consciousness. So I started to ask myself, what is this place? Where, where have I come from? And that's where I got this, this word Eklon came to me at the time. And, and then I said, well, when will I find out about this again, where I came from? And it told me, at first it said, when you're turned 14. Um, and, and then the window closed down. Um, and so I, for years, I would go around dropping the name Eklon to friends here and there, just to see if anybody recognized it. <laughs> but no, of course not. Nobody uh, knew what the word meant. Didn't trigger anything, so I wasn't going to say anything <laughs> about it. Um, but then when I turned 14, I had by that time realized that religion was not going to work for me. I did not. Re I realized at that time I didn't even have a reason to believe in God. I didn't think that that meant God was, didn't exist, but I didn't have a reason to think that God existed. And so I, you know, remember uh, even right now the experience of standing out in the backyard and basically looking up in the night sky at the stars and thinking, you know, I don't believe in God, and I had to say that. So I said it out loud wondering if I would be you know, struck down or something would happen. But I felt relieved. I felt a release, a sense of freedom. And that's when I realized I was 14. And I, I thought, well, I don't know. I didn't get the answer I was supposed to. So I wondered. I said, this isn't right. I was supposed to know. So I went and tried to open that window to that dream state again. And remarkably, the dream came back to me. The state of consciousness came back to me again. And I asked, so what is this? Am I supposed to, is this supposed to be it? He says, no, you'll be ready when you're 19. And, you know, so that experience, I'm thinking, oh, right, yeah. This will keep getting pushed off, what, every five years or something? <laughs> so it was a little wild of an experience, but... And I forgot about it. By the time I turned 19, I had forgotten about it until, I, until Dave told me it was my birthday. It was like, whoa. <laughs> well, I think it's worth pointing out you were raised in the Catholic Church, and, and for a while you were rather devout. You were an altar boy. Yeah. It was, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was devout, but I was really um, curious about the religious experience. It was something about the church and the the symbols in the church and something about it. And I don't really know what got into my head about it, but I decided I wanted to become an altar boy one day. My parents were shocked. You know, they didn't expect it at all. Uh, I used to get on my bike and ride down like, you know, 5.30 in the morning to make the 6 o'clock mass so I could do it before going to school. Uh, and it was, it was a different world going in there. And I, it brought up different ideas. So it got me thinking along a religious line, but uh, I wouldn't say I was devout, but there was something about it that intrigued me. And now that you mention it, I do recall that the, the altar boys would sometimes make funny faces at each other 
try to get each other to giggle during the Mass? The Mass was so serious, and that was the thing. We would sit there on the sides and try to get the other ones to laugh, you know. It was just because it didn't feel like it should be that serious, even though that was obviously the ceremony. It was a serious ceremony. But <laughs> well, and I gather that when you had that experience of saying, to yourself, I don't believe in God, saying it out loud, I'll wait till I have proof. Uh, you had already, even at, at that young age, uh, gotten very steeped in science. Yes, that's what had happened. I started to really study science, and uh, it, it changed my perception. It changed my perception of what, you know, I could count on as being real and how I should decide when I knew something was real or, or didn't know something. And, and as I look at your life journey, Doug, I think it's quite amazing because uh, you've now written a book about science. You've gotten deeply involved in engineering and in business. You have, I think, more than 20 patents to your name. There are uh, millions of products out there that utilize your patents. Uh, but you followed an unusual route as a college dropout. Uh, yeah. It, there is another... Uh aspect to this that I'll tell you was not in my book, but I think you'll find this interesting. When I had that experience when I was uh, 11, this dream experience of me belonging to this other world, I saw there that, they, that in that other world they had a science that went beyond our science. Uh, and, uh, and a different interpretation of art that was different from uh, a lot of what art is seen as. And I remember thinking, I was going to discover that science. At some point, I was going to remember, not discover, but remember it, that, uh, that I knew it. Um, and it's interesting that later on, uh, after I did go to Las Vegas to track down uh, the, the office that Paul Twitchell had started, I, later on, shortly after that, I got wondering about that dream experience I had had when I was 11. And I wondered, um, you know, more about it. Was there somebody who could tell me more about it? And I had an experience, an inner experience about this. It's not in my book, but I, in this inner experience, a being came to me who I immediately thought must be some kind of a very wise master of some kind. And he uh, says, "You, you wanted to know and he says, so I'm the one that you were asking about, I can tell you. And, and, he, and when I asked him about my experience that I happened there and, and the science, he said, yes, he says, you will, you will find it. And, and you'll remember it. And so I uh, asked him who he, he was. He didn't want to tell me his name. And so he did tell me a name, but it was not, it was, it was some kind of a joke or something like this. Uh, but he says, you'll know me, he says, because I've, uh, I've written these books. And he told me the name of two books that he wrote. Um, and so then I, after that dream experience, I woke up. I wrote down the names of the books. And I went looking in the library. This was before the internet. So I had to go through card catalogs and looking through different libraries and I could never find the books anywhere. Um, well, it was later on that I realized 
when I was discovering that getting back into science again, I remembered the name. One of the books he said was Lenses of Perception. And I thought, oh, that would be a perfect name for the book I'm thinking of writing. <laughs> and that was what I, now looking back, I have to say, that was probably me, myself, <laughs> meeting myself, and which is why I had such a, that person had such a laugh when I asked what his name was. <laughs> he laughed at me. Now you've raised a very interesting point because throughout your book, you describe many stories of uh, inner journeys where you encounter other beings, wise teachers. And uh, the question always arises because the great mystics tell us we are one with everything in the universe. To what extent are these wise teachers part of our own soul? so to speak, our own psyche, and to what extent are they really external? Ha having had quite a few of these experiences, I, I have to say that uh, there is some truth to that, but it's in, in many of these cases, they were definitely other beings with an with a, a awareness and a wisdom that was not my own. It was, it was something beyond my understanding at the time, but there is always this you cannot understand the wisdom of another unless you also, to some extent, understand it within yourself. So there is always some truth that, that we're seeing, what we see in somebody else. We often meet somebody, we say, I look up to that person. But if we're looking up to something in them, it's already something we recognize. We just don't recognize it in ourselves yet. But it is there, you know. So there's some truth to that. So after you uh, left the tent and, and the woods at the age of 19, I guess it was about then that, uh, or maybe a year later, you went off to Las Vegas and uh, with $35 in your pocket to uh, encounter uh, the movement founded by Paul Twitchell known as Ekinkar. Yes, yes. It was a few months after uh, my birthday that, when I turned 19, that I, I headed out to, um, to, uh, to Las Vegas. And I, I had, uh, besides $35, I had a sleeping bag and a piece of plastic, which I figured I could use to make a tent if it was raining or something like this. But of course, Las Vegas is in a desert, so I assumed it would be warm and it would, there would be no, no such thing as rain or anything like that. Oh, well, when I landed, they had just, it just snowed there in the desert. It was a lot colder than I thought, but the sleeping bag turned out to be fine. Even though you, you traveled alone, you had this sense, and you describe it quite eloquently, you were really never alone. There were always people around who seemed to be uh, there to support you on your journey. Yeah, it was just one amazing thing after another which I took afterwards to realize was a confirmation what I was doing was the right thing. I was not going against life, I was going with life. But um, it was one thing after the other, and I was so aware of how alone I felt when I headed out of this, on this journey, because I was going thousands of miles away from where I grew up. I didn't know anybody living in that, in that area, uh, no relatives or anything, anywhere close to that area. So it felt very much like I was alone, but I kept meeting people who were 
making big contributions and helping me uh, find a place to stay and uh, find eventually finding the Ekinkar office, which turned out to be a lot harder than I expected. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it was it was so remarkable that afterwards I it really hit home that there was something else helping me, guiding me, with me to bring these people along at the right time. It, it just could not have been too, too many coincidences. It couldn't have been coincidence. Well, and you know, the interesting thing from my point of view is there, uh, probably around the same time, and in my case, it was 1969, and I uh, had a job. I was already out of college, but I had my first job, and I quit after six weeks. I had $200 in my pocket, and I went out to California uh, for much the same reason, following an impulse. I didn't know a soul, uh, but I think it's one of the best decisions I ever made. And it sort of reminds me as well of the biblical story of Abraham who leaves his home in uh, the city of Ur and, and wanders to what we now call the Holy Land and, you know, becomes the founder of the three major monotheistic religions. The, 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 the journey seems very important. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, I was very aware that I felt like my life up until that point had been on some kind of track that was just going along and I needed to do something different. I needed to start a new life in some way. Uh, and it was at that age to just break away and leave everybody I knew and go off on this adventure. It was, it made everything so vivid. Everything I experienced was so different and so new and so vivid. It was it was really a changing point. One interesting example uh, that you describe is how uh, you were going to attend a uh, a lecture, I think an Ekinkar lecture. You made a wrong turn, but because you made the wrong turn, you ran into a, a person who was very helpful to you that would have been almost impossible to find. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually was walking, trying to walk to where this Ek Center meeting was going to be, uh, and uh, I did. I went, I went north instead of going south, and there I ran into somebody who turned out to be an Ekist. And she recognized I was carrying the discourses, which I had just signed up for. And she recognized the symbol on the envelope. And she, she called it, she said, Ekinkar. I looked at her and said, well, how did you know? And she said, oh, she pointed it out. And then she ended up actually not only helping me find the right direction to the meeting, but actually getting my first apartment and uh, a place to stay in the city. I had been, at the time, camped out like 40 miles out of the city and had to uh, hitch a ride in every day. And, and you actually ended up working there in the Ekinkar office, which I think is something we discussed in our previous interview. Yeah, that happened about um, two months later. I was able to get a job there. Um, yeah, and that, that itself was another remarkable experience. I had been in into the office a few times uh, um, and there was a the, the secretary there, her name was Sherry, uh, she would always have a discussion with me and I'd flip through the books which I couldn't afford to buy yet but after I had been working for a little bit I could start buying some of them. Um, and But I was always looking at what books I'm and I asked her uh, early on, in fact when I first got there 
and signed up for the discourses for the first time. I also filled out an employment form, wondering if I could get a job there. So I'd always go in and ask her, you know, what's the likelihood of getting hired here? And they only had uh, eight employees at the time in the office there. And the general administrator never hired anybody under uh, the age of 21. So my chances were not good. Uh, but I would keep asking her, and she encouraged me to, you know, she said, you know, you should talk to the general administrator and ask him, introduce yourself. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll do that one day. And so then, I don't know, I let another, it was probably weeks went by, and I suddenly I had this feeling, okay, it feels like the right time. I should go in, I should introduce myself. So I rode my bike down to the, to the, set, the office there, and I walked in the general administrator's door, which I'd never been in before. In fact, I'd never met him before. And I walked up to him and I said, hi, my name is Doug Marmon. And he looks at me with this look on his face. And, he, and then he looks over through the door to Sherry and goes, Sherry? And she's, and I kind of peek around the door to see what she's looking at. She's going, I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked back at him and I said, you're kidding. <laughs> because I intuitively knew the thoughts. It was like I understood exactly what was happening. I had just been given a job. And I just knew it. And, and he, he said, yeah. He said he had just gotten off the phone with Darwin Gross, who was the spiritual leader of Eckinger at the time. And Darwin had told him to hire me. And that was like, by itself, mind-blowing that he would have said that. But so, yeah. So that was how I started working there. <laughs> I became the ninth employee. <laughs> well, I know you learned a lot in uh, the context of, of working in this uh, fledgling uh, religious organization. Uh, it may not have even been a uh, religious organization at the time. As, as we discussed in our previous interview, it was originally founded as a for-profit company. Uh, but what really impressed me, Doug, is, is the more than once, a couple of times, you got fired. And I, I think those uh, events seem to me to be uh, as important as getting hired. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, I probably have a record on being fired by the Ekinkar office more times than anyone else. <laughs> uh, but it always, every time it happened, it was always a, an amazing spiritual experience behind it. And, uh, and, and uh, so each of those was, was a real, they, they taught me something really important spiritually. Um, each time it happened, it kind of reinforced it again that my connection was with the spiritual teachings. My connection was with this spiritual hierarchy that existed. It wasn't necessarily with the organization or with the, with the uh, office. Uh, and in fact, Paul Twitchell, I think he had an awareness about that early on. He made a, a rule that people who worked at the office, he asked them to only work for two years and then leave. He wanted to get people in to get a sense of what the center there was like, but he felt like where it was really happening was out in the field. And that was, was meeting with others, having a life with others, not separate from others. And, uh, and I think there was a lot of wisdom in that. It turned out to be really 
helpful. But so I, I would get fired, and I, in the first time I got fired, it was really something I, I had, didn't do anything wrong. The general administrator was trying to get some information on some other person I didn't want to share it. They fired me for it. Darwin hired me back, and that general administrator got fired himself shortly after that. So that was the first time. Uh, but the second time, I, I left, and then a couple years, uh, or a year later, I came back to work at the, the publications department. So that's where I uh, got to do some writing there, which was fun. Now, you refer to Darwin uh, Gross, who was the uh, successor to Paul Twitchell, uh, the, the second leader of Ekin Carr, and he became uh, a mentor and I suppose a spiritual teacher f to you. But uh, later on, you describe how he himself experienced, uh, I don't know if I would call it a fall from grace, but it, it seemed that way. Yes, yes. Um, it was... It was a hard thing to see for him, and I, it happened after he had um, passed the leadership role on to Harold Klemp. Um, and with that went this huge shift. I could see it happening. He, he lost so much of the spiritual flow that was coming, had been coming through him. Um, and he had, he had difficulty with that. Um, I think he he himself came to realize uh, what had happened, but it was, it was difficult to watch, especially he was in such a public position. Uh, so it was, it was hard to watch, it was hard to watch that. But I, I always felt so, so much of appreciation and a, a debt to him for the things he did for me. The idea that a person could rise to a position of spiritual leadership in this case, really, the head of a religious organization. And, and then in the case of Darwin Gross, as I believe I read in your book, he was, in effect, banned from the religion or banished in, in some way. Uh, that, that lesson seemed to stick with you about the, uh, the risks of uh, thinking that you have the answers which is a theme we, we started our interview with. Yeah, it was a powerful lesson to see. Um, uh, I, I realized at the time that, that Darwin's story was not over. He was learning and growing from this. But this idea that you can achieve something and then you got it forever, or you, you made it, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, my, my whole reason for coming into the physical world was that I still had more to learn if I wanted to find myself, establish myself in a higher state of consciousness. I had so much to learn. And over and over again, my experiences have taught that, that that's true over and over again. The lessons that you learned and, and, and that you begin the book with, once again, asking the questions. The questions are so much more important than the answers that even though you have really been with Ekin Carr your entire life, uh, my sense is that uh, it's really about being on a spiritual path and, and the organization is very, very secondary to uh, the path itself because the path is an internal process. 
Yes, yes, it really is. And, and that's one of the things I came to realize later. If you talk about the difference between, say, religion and the spiritual path, they start off very similar. Um, but some, somewhere along the way, a person has to make a choice. Are they looking for something in the outer world as an authority, as a position of authority, to tell them what the spiritual path is? Or are they going to look to the inner path itself the, as the source? And that was the choice. You know, that's exactly what Paul Twitchell was talking about. That's exactly what he said Ekankar was supposed to be about, the inner path. And he always said, he would capitalize all the letters when he said Ekankar, meaning the spiritual teaching. And he would use you know, all small letters when it was the organization. And he tried to make clear it was there were two different things. In your book, The Silent Questions, you describe personally having gone through a series of initiations, and you even describe them numerically, the second initiation, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And uh, I gather that within the Ekankar uh, cosmology, uh, these numbers are very meaningful. And uh, at the same time, you you say that uh, they're pretty meaningless if you haven't actually had the experience. It's the experience that counts, not the cosmology or theology behind it. Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> the Paul Twitchell did lay down the principles that these initiations were tied to the Inner, these inner worlds, and that each one represented a, a new stage in development. But it, I had read those things, and I, had, I thought I knew, I thought I understood it intellectually, but it was nothing like the experience actually was. Uh, and so I realized, after the, by the time I got to the third initiation, I realized I have to throw away everything I thought I knew, because the second initiation did not look was not at all what I expected. The, th the third was the same. I realized it was going to be like that all the way. So I gave up even thinking I knew any of these things. I think there's a value in reading about them, um, but it should never, no one should ever think that they can understand what they're like from reading them. The experience, it's all about the experience. Uh, and another thing I, wanted, I would think to say, in some organizations, uh, terms like initiations are seen as a rank in the organization. And I, it's quite clear to me now that that's not at all what initiation, real initiations are about. They're invitations. They're invitations to kind of step into a, another a plane of existence, another dimension of existence, and start to live more than one life. Not just a physical life. You can have a life on these other world at the same time. But you have to still do that yourself. You still have to make those steps yourself. An initiation is only an invitation that comes to you from the inner, it kind of opens a door. But you still have to walk through that door. In your case, as I understand it, the, uh, the sequence was sort of uh, getting grounded in the physical plane and then understanding the astral plane uh, and then moving to a level above the astral plane that you refer to as the causal plane, and then another plane of a being above the causal plane called the mental plane. Right. And th those terms, uh, we should never get stuck on the terms because lots of different people who have traveled these inner worlds have had different names and different 
terms to describe them, and that's just the terms I've used. It's the terms that Paul Twitchell used. Theosophy used uh, similar terms, but they're not exactly the same in all the cases. And, and so they're kind of westernized versions. Qualitatively, they seem different to you in, experientially. I have to say that when I began having these ex inner experiences that came with being on the spiritual path, that I was very, having a very hard time placing where these experiences were coming from. But I kept, I kept this kind of a challenge. Okay, where did this experience come from? And I try and sort it out. It took years before I had a sense that I could sense where a experience was coming from, what state of consciousness it was coming from. But it was a good exercise because it, it began to show me with much more clarity how different these states were. It seemed, the, the way I interpret your book, is that you would have a very profound spiritual experience. It might be in a dream, or it might be in uh, a, a soul travel exercise, which would be a, a waking experience, but very, very hard to put into words. Uh, so what you would do is write a story that like the story would just come to you out of the experience. The story wasn't exactly the same as the experience, but it was your best effort to communicate. Yes, I wanted to capture the heart of these experiences, but just trying to say it literally was not getting it. So I found a better way that was telling a story, finding a story of some kind that captured the essence of that experience that I was going through. And the realization that I had from that experience, I wanted a reader to be able to read the story and feel that same sense of realization by going through the story. I found the stories to be very uh, profound and fascinating. They remind me of Sufi stories. They remind me of some of the uh, writings of Rumi. Uh, I think you've, uh, obviously, you've read a lot of that literature. And, and I think uh, you struggled a little bit with the question of how much can you reveal? Because these are inner experiences. They're meant just for you on the one hand, and on, so maybe they're not to be shared, and on the other hand, there's a certain responsibility you have to share them. I asked the same question myself. What, how do I interpret the, how do I deal with these things? Do I share it or not? And I went back and forth on it, um, and it finally came to me over time that first, a spiritual experience was very personal, and I needed to digest it. I needed to become a part of me. I needed to really be something that was such a part of me that I couldn't lose it. Because otherwise, if I did it, if I shared it before then, I could lose that experience. I feel like I was giving something away um, that belonged to me. Um, and I came to realize over time that that was a relationship I had with the spiritual path itself. The experience I had with the path was a relationship that I had to honor and treat as personal and very intimate. And just like you would not share a personal intimate experience with others, I had to keep those things to myself. But after I had digested them, after they became a part of my being, there were times when I realized sharing those would help others. It was of value to share those experiences for the sake of others. And that was then 
would change the experience for me. I could then share it. It was not personal anymore. It, was, it belonged to the world. It belonged to others as well. Well, you report several experiences of communicating with animals. And on one occasion, a very close encounter with a bird that seemed to communicate with you and recognize you. But when you told your wife about it, it was as if the uh, bond you had with the bird was broken. I had just written a story. This is one of these stories I was trying to capture something I was sensing inwardly. I had written this story about a bird, uh, called him Bird Friend. He was this uh, master who was the master of birds. He was uh, kind of the master for the birds, and they all followed him around. And I did a favor for the, this person, and this person then said I was to be considered a friend of all birds as well. The next week, this bird flies out of around me, cawing at me, and sits in the tree as I'm approaching. Then it flies away. The next tree, it comes back and it flies around me again. And, and it did this over and over again. And then the next day when I came out for a walk going that, down that same road, the bird flew out again from far away, came out to fly around me. This happened every day for a week. And then I brought my wife there to show her because it was just so unbelievable. I would, I came, we came out, no sign of the bird. I whistle, and from a mile or so away, you could see the bird flying up out of the trees from way away, started cawing, and he came, flew right into the tree next to us. And it was, that was when I realized I could feel it. I had made a mistake. I should not have shared that with somebody else. And, and that was it. It was all. It was gone. It was, I felt a real sense of loss. And I realized how important it is to understand that if you want to live in these other worlds, you have to follow different spiritual laws that apply to those states of consciousness, or else you'll lose them. And yet, you also describe a very intimate spiritual relationship with your wife. Yes, yes. We've had uh, numerous many experiences. When, uh, when I first met with her, um, it, we, we hit it off right away. Uh, uh, we both have the same sort of sense of humor, and we enjoyed uh, being together. We, we liked doing the same things together. <clears throat> Uh, camping and, and going to swim in the, the lakes nearby. Uh, but then I began to wonder, is, was this going too fast? Was this relationship going too fast? So I, 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 this was very early on. I, I just wondered, should I slow down? Should I uh, take this a little bit slower? Well, we had just been out driving around. We came to stop. Uh, she was dropping me off. And we both decided to just do a contemplation together. And this, I just immediately started going out of my body, going up into this higher state of consciousness, and she was there. And I immediately, could, from that state of consciousness, I could see that we did belong together. Uh, and that we had so much pulling us together, and that it was right. And I came back into my body and I looked over to her. I was thinking, you know, I just was going to share her the experience. And she said, see? <laughs> it's like, that. like, like I told you so. <laughs> you know, 
and because she had had the same exact experience. And you uh, met her, I guess, shortly after you moved to Las Vegas at the age of nineteen. Yes, yes. She she uh, started working at the office just a couple of months before I did. Uh, she had just moved to Las Vegas as well. To move sort of forward in your life, there's so much to cover in in this book. But at one point, you began. Uh, describing, um, I think it's probably associated with the mental plane, and you're talking about uh, Nikola Tesla, the great inventor, and how these inventions came to him fully formed through intuition. And around that same time, you also got involved in the world of engineering and industry. Uh, you founded a high-tech company. Uh, you have 20 patents to your name. Something was happening to you very similar to the way that Nikola Tesla received his inventions. Yeah, he was a remarkable person, and I, when I was doing the research on him, I just realized how remarkable he was. Um, but shortly after that, it started opening up for me, the, this inner experience I had of just kind of sensing that there was uh, something about what was going on, and I would start exploring it, and it would just open up for me. I would begin to see it. Um, and when it first happened, it was quite well, quite a lot of fun, but I didn't know what I was doing. It took a while before I realized how I did it or how it worked. I'll tell you an interesting story that happened much later than that, you know, long after that. I was leading a class of just for people who are interested in the spiritual path, and we would do some kind of a spiritual exercise. And I thought that one of the things that might be interesting to try is go visiting what Paul Twitchell had called the Astral Museum, uh, which was a museum on the astral plane where you could see inventions there before they came into the physical world. And I thought everybody might enjoy that. So we went and had that experience. And while I was walking down the hallway to go into the museum, I stopped and I looked and there was an office with my name on it. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> this is my office. That's where I was getting some of these ideas from. I had an office there in the Astral Museum. I thought that was quite something. <laughs> the intriguing thing to me is that people, when you try to explain to them how you, your co-workers, for example, uh, when you got in involved in your early days as an engineer, uh, your co-workers uh, couldn't believe that the solutions that you had come up with would even work. And when you tried to describe to them how you arrived at those solutions, it, it was so far out of the box that, that they couldn't even follow your logic. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was true. My approach was uh, intuitive. I, I, there was an interesting article that got put out uh, by uh, uh, Harvard Business one day. They, they talked about engineers who are intuitive. They say it's a, they represent a very small percentage of the engineers, but they think and approach things very differently. And it was uh, good to keep one or two of them around because they would see and approach things from a different uh, perspective. And that was definitely... Where, the way I approach things. It was not the traditional approach. But uh, yeah, it did. It was very, very different.
I have to imagine that your decision at a very early age to drop out of college had something to do with it. Had you pursued a conventional path in science and engineering, uh, that intuitive ability might have been drummed right out of you. Yeah, I, I could sense that the approach that was being taken was not suitable for me. I could get the books and read them myself. I didn't need somebody going through the chapters. But I did have a different way of learning, and it was through experiencing things uh, and then seeing things intuitively. Um, so I had to really understand something. I didn't just read it, learn the, learn the equations and how to do the math. I wanted to really understand it. And uh, physics had made a change back by the time I was starting to stud study physics in school, and they had basically abandoned trying to understand things because quantum mechanics had changed everything. And once I realized that they weren't looking for an understanding, I lost a lot of interest at the time. Doug Barman, you've had a fascinating life journey. Uh, I'm pleased to inform our viewers that we plan to do several more interviews. I think it will be valuable for our viewers to get to know you as a as a person, as a spiritual seeker. And then uh, when we finally discuss your book on science, Lenses of Perception, they'll have uh, so much more appreciation for how you uh, arrived at that scientific understanding. So I want to thank you very much for being with me. I want to encourage our viewers to check out your books and uh, look forward to future discussions with you. I look forward to them as well. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you very much for being with us. Mm -hmm.